Reverend fathers, religious brothers and sisters, seminarians, ladies and gentlemen, I extend a, a very warm welcome to you all on behalf of the Committee of Pro Ecclesia et Pontifice. We have friends here today from many parts of the country, but whether you have travelled from far or near, you are all here for one reason, to celebrate with us the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Our programme consists of four parts, one on each of the four parts of the Catechism. And I'm sure you're going to find all the talks both informative and inspiring. There will be two talks this morning, after which we shall say the Angelus and sing the Salve Regina. Before breaking for lunch, there will be some important announcements, two of which will relate to the books which you will have found on your seats. These books are a gift to each of you from two generous benefactors. When we return after lunch, there will be two more presentations, and in between those talks, we shall have our question time, when your written questions will be answered by our distinguished panel. The day will end, as usual, with a rousing rendition of the hymn which might be called our signature tune, Faith of Our Fathers. I'm pleased to tell you that we have received messages of support and an assurance of prayers for today's event from Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, from Archbishop Kevin MacDonald and from Auxiliary Bishop Alan Hopes. We are grateful to His Eminence and to their Lordships for their support. Thinking back to the launch of the Catechism in this country ten years ago, we recall the words of the Holy Father when he spoke of the Catechism as a statement of the Church's faith and of Catholic doctrine attested to by sacred scripture, the apostolic tradition and the Church's magisterium, a sure norm for teaching the faith. We remember too that in an introduction to the Catechism, Cardinal Ratzinger reminded us that it should serve the original task of catechesis, that is, evangelization. We were told in a pastoral letter which was read at all masses on the 29th of May 1994 that, and I quote, today we need a clear, up-to-date and authoritative summary of Catholic teaching. The new catechism is precisely that. It comes to us with the authority of the Holy Father himself. It will be a key document for all engaged in the task of handing on the faith. End of quote. There was indeed a great sense of expectation at that time. However, during the ten years which have elapsed since 1994, the Catechism has too often been left to gather dust on the shelves of our homes, our schools, our presbyteries, and our seminaries. The Catechism, like so many other documents from Rome, has not been widely welcomed or implemented in this country as it should have been. So, although we have been given the remedy for many of our problems, until we start using it, they will not be resolved. That is why we must celebrate the Catechism. That is why we must be conversant with it. That is why we must regenerate and fulfil that original expectation. That is why we are here today. Now to our first speaker. Father Martin Edwards spoke at the Faith of Our Fathers Conference in 1999 and we are very grateful to him for sparing the time in his busy schedule to be with us again today. Father Edwards is a priest of the Archdiocese of Southwark. He was ordained in 1991 and since then has worked in four parishes. 
Currently, he is the parish priest at St Mary Magdalene, East Hill, Wandsworth, in southwest London. For many years, Father has worked with the Latin Mass Society and often celebrates the traditional Mass. He is president of the Priestly Association of St John Fisher, a group of priests who cherish and promote the traditional liturgy of the Roman Church. He writes articles for various Orthodox Catholic journals and, when his pastoral duties permit, he is happy to accept invitations to give talks and to conduct days of recollection. He is the spiritual director to the Southwark Diocese branch of the Catholic Women's League and to the North Surrey Curia of the Legion of Mary. Today, Father is speaking to us on the first part of the Catechism, and his title is Catechisms and the Creed. Will you welcome, please, Father Martin Edwards. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, our, our faith of our Father's celebration of the 10th anniversary of the publication of the English edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church has been, as you know, given the title Credo. It's a very fitting designation since this is truly a celebration of faith, the faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire and diocesan catechetical centres. <laughs> Credo. I believe. Soon, please God, will once more be saying that Sunday by Sunday at Mass if the new, and I must say much improved, Icel translation of the English Mass meets with the approval of their lordships. Let's hope we return to a, traditional, a tradition honoured by a thousand years or more of liturgical use. I believe, not we believe at Mass. Now, I've been asked on this day of celebration of the treasures of the Catechism to make some introductory remarks on Catechisms in general and to comment on the first section of the Catechism, the part dealing with the Creed. The Creed may be the first section of the Catechism, but it's not the first word of that great and important work. Firstly, the Catechism reminds us that credo, I believe, is a response. We forget that sometimes. We think of it as a confession, an affirmation, which it is. But before that, it's a response. A response to the God who loves us, who reveals himself to us from the heart of man who is made to know and love God. When I read those first chapters of the Catechism. They remind me of a gospel I often read at a funeral, the account of the raising of Lazarus, according to the St. John. You remember that Martha is able to put to our Lord that complaint that so often arises in the Christian heart when we lose someone we love. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she gets, in return, a sermon a beautiful sermon, a sermon that finds an echo, really, in every Christian funeral. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. But she doesn't want a sermon. She wants her brother back. And so our Lord turns to her. You can imagine him turning to her and says, at least in the Latin gospel, two words, credis oc. Do you believe this? And it's only in the presence of the Lord, in response to his words of life, that the woman who then becomes, I think, a symbol of the believing church can respond with her credo. And then, and then the miracle happens and the dead man lives. Nor is credo my first word, because before we start examining the text of the Catechism, a process that will continue all day with very qualified speakers, 
we need to turn to an objection that I know many here today have raised at one time or another, and some of you already in writing. And it's this. Why do we need the catechism, a new catechism at all? Surely a return to the old penny catechism with its clear and memorable formulations is preferable to wading through this vast volume with its difficult and sometimes opaque and nuanced language. These are important points, and ones with which I have a certain sympathy. I must confess that when a convert knocks at my door and we begin instruction, I normally wouldn't hand that volume over. I usually turn to the penny catechism. And also, if I want a a succinct definition of some point of Christian doctrine, for a sermon, for example, it's far easier to find it in that earlier and shorter work. But that comparison that's not infrequently made in orthodox circles is not entirely fair because it doesn't compare like with like. However, right at the start of this day as we commemorate the 10th anniversary of its launch, it's useful to ask and I hope answer that question, why do we need effectively a new catechism? We don't call it that anymore but relatively speaking that's what it is. Well, when he launched the catechism back in 1992, because some of you may remember there was an almost a two-year delay before we got our English version, more of that later, His Eminence Cardinal Ratzinger stated that it would help quench that thirst for truth and certitude which today bursts forth widely and insistently from the human heart. That thirst for truth and certitude is something that I think all of us in this hall have experienced. We're looking back at an anniversary here, an important one, the 10th anniversary. Let's go back a bit further, the last 40 years, the post-conciliar period. Most of us, some of the younger people here haven't, but most of us have lived through so many changes and indeed see changes in the church in recent years, that this desire for certitude has often been, on a practical level, frustrated and confused. For for example, an example close to my heart, as your chairman mentioned, 40 years ago in this country, Mass was always said in Latin, and English forbidden or, or strictly limited, the exact opposite is now the case. 40 years ago, it was forbidden to join in worship with Protestants. Even going to a wedding or a funeral was difficult, and now even non-Christians regularly appear at ecumenical services. A few years ago, it was forbidden, as we know, to, to employ altar girls. Now we find them almost everywhere. In some places, it's virtually uh, compulsory. That list, of course, could continue all morning. It would be an exaggeration to say that there has been, in a technical sense, doctrinal confusion in the church since the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. The church's magisterium has remained what it always was, but, but the practical perception of what it means to be a Catholic has at times appeared uncertain and confused. Messages have gone out at variance with the church's teaching, even from quite high authorities in this and many other countries. For years and years, until recently, the Catholic press so-called hit us over the head week by week with unorthodox opinions. There has, in other words, for some time been a need for a catechism, a popular compendium of doctrine, to assimilate, arrange, to, to make sense of the last 40 years in the light of the church's constant tradition, to reaffirm the pilgrim people of God in their sense of purpose and direction. That's what the catechism explicitly sets out to do. That's what it does by exhibiting what the Holy Father calls 
the constant and wondrous harmony of the Catholic faith. Those remarks are, I would dare to say, especially pertinent for younger people. For those who received their catechetical instruction in an atmosphere of constant and unprecedented change. Those born in the 1960s, for example. The results of this are obvious to all, for all to see. The worrying decline in, in practice by young people. And their astonishing, I would use this word uh, in a neutral sense, ignorance of many of the dogmas and doctrines of the faith. Of course, intellectual knowledge of the faith isn't everything. The devil has that. No one gets to heaven by apologetics alone, and Satan can argue proof texts even with the Lord. But the decline in Christian knowledge is now uh, an open secret. We have our organizer, Daphne McLeod, at the back, and she can tell us, as she has over previous years, about the glaring inadequacies of modern catechetical programs, RE courses in use in schools. It's a triumph of the faith, uh, of the faith of individual RE teachers and parents when children are brought up believing uh, correctly. My experience of schools is that we, we shouldn't blame the religious education teachers. Many of them have received their own formation in these difficult times that I've been talking about. It's not malice, but it's ignorance. And very often when they've asked for a fish, they've been handed a snake. No real nourishment. Well, that is why we need the catechism. But why a new catechism? What's wrong with the old penny catechism? Why can't we remedy the present confusion in religious education and more generally by return to the tried and trusted methods that nourished the faith and piety of generations? Why not back to basics? Why do we need that great coffee table sized book there? Well, of course, there is nothing wrong with the penny catechism, nor should we regard it as simply out of date or like last year's telephone directory. The CTS have recently brought out a new edition of the catechism, which I understand is selling well. And uh, the catechism of the Catholic Church affirms explicitly that the values of such uh, previous formulations. But having been written at and for a certain period in history, it consequently and necessarily fails to address some, and some people would say many, questions and problems that we face today. Not long ago, somebody sent me a book to review. I'm normally sent review books for magazines that don't pay you anything for reviewing them. You simply get to keep the book. And this was a book by Francis J. Connell. He was an advisor to the U.S. bishops during Vatican II. Uh, and it was uh, a book on moral theology, uh, outlines of moral theology. It was a, a classic for many years. It's a superb summary of Catholic moral teaching and practice written towards the end of the 1950s in what was, in retrospect, the high summer of American Catholicism. And consequently, that book that, as I say, has been recently reissued contains only the briefest of references to abortion, to contraception, you could hardly get more burning moral issues for the Catholics of today. It doesn't even mention homosexuality or, or paedophilia. IVF, euthanasia, and many other of the issues at the centre of moral debate nowadays are simply absent. The agenda moves on. Science, technology, 
culture, throw up new challenges or, or resurrect old ones. And the church, our mother and teacher, must and does respond. And so the Holy Father writes of the need to illumine with the light of faith the new situations and problems which had not yet emerged in the past. That's one of the reasons why we do need a new catechism. New moral decisions and debates have called forth this catechism of the Catholic Church. But it's not simply a reaction to an agenda set by society or a solution to a crisis. Nothing wrong with that. Many of the great councils of the church have been solutions to crises, but the catechism is not a council. The church's doctrine itself develops as she penetrates more and more deeply into the revelation Christ entrusted her once and for all to his apostles. And the catechism reflects this ever-growing and developing appreciation of the content of our faith. It reflects the truth that, like all living things, the church grows and, and changes. Indeed, in all living bodies, growth and change, as Newman is often quoted as saying, are necessary to sustain life, to avoid corruption. The church experiences the paradox that underpins all life that we must change in order to remain the same. And that's an important message to communicate to those who are, on the one hand, bewildered or conversely intoxicated by change. Change is necessary in order to retain identity, in order that the church should be the same. Since the, the publication of the old Roman catechism, two important ecumenical councils have been held. And there have also been advances in other doctrinal areas, in the theology of grace, in the understanding of the church, particularly the powers and the prerogatives of the Holy Father. Marian dogmas have been defined. The faith remains the same, but the church's insight into it has developed. And the catechism of the Catholic Church does reflect that development. Pope John Paul II explains this at the start of the work where he says, this catechism will thus contain both the new and the old. See Matthew 13.52. Because the faith is always the same, yet the source of ever new light or as the Catechism itself neatly puts it. Yet even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. And that's another reason why it be rash to dismiss the Catechism, because it lacks, for example, the precision, clarity, and economy of the Penny Catechism. Uh, for this criticism is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what the newer Catechism truly is. The word Catechism sounds and is, of course, Greek, coming from catechesis, oral instruction. And it's come to mean a manual or book of such instruction. As the bishops of England and Wales noted in their guidelines issued when the English version of the Catechism came out ten years ago, catechisms are almost as old as the Church. From the earliest times, there was a need to present Christian doctrine in a systematic and pastoral form to meet the needs of adult instruction. And many of the fathers of the church wrote or delivered catechetical works, sometimes even at the times of persecution. The great theologians of the church also wrote catechisms. For example, at the start of the 5th century, St. Augustine of Hippo penned his De Doctrina Christiana, 
and in the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Contra Gentiles. Heretics, too, sought to enshrine their novel doctrines within a catechetical framework. Both Luther and Calvin produced catechisms. We think of the famous Westminster Catechism produced, of course, not far from here. Popular presentations of their versions of the Christian faith. However, it was after the Council of Trent, towards the end of the 16th century, that the first truly universal church catechism was produced. And the Penny Catechism and the other versions, such as the the Baltimore Catechism, ultimately derive from that catechism of the Council of Trent, published in 1566. This work, usually known as the Roman Catechism, that is, by the way, extensively quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, written in Latin, was intended primarily for the use of the parish clergy. It was part and parcel of that great Tridentine reform, containing, as it did, a distillation of the defense of the faith, uh, not only against the, the Protestants, but in the light of the resurgent church, the Counter-Reformation, so-called. Well, catechisms thus have a a long, noble, and unbroken history. And the catechism of the Catholic Church follows the well-established tradition of such documents. It presents the faith, as you know, in four sections. An exposition of the creed, then the sacraments, then the moral life of the Christian, and finally, a treatise on prayer. And in so doing, it conforms to a formula already classic in the Middle Ages. There's nothing new about that. Indeed, the table of contents for the 16th century Roman Catechism and the New Catechism are almost identical. I have a very old copy of the Roman Catechism was able to verify that. It deals with more or less the same subjects and in the same order. Now the novelty and value of the Catechism of the Catholic Church lies not in its structure, not in its subject matter either, but in the way in which it treats and develops the material within that traditional framework of creed, sacraments, commandments, and prayer. The true splendor of the Catechism comes from the breadth and richness of the sources it draws on to present and illustrate the faith. Like all catechisms, it draws on the official teaching of the Church and sacred scripture as its main sources, scripture and tradition. But its treatment of scripture is is far fuller than has been evident in previous catechisms. I won't say then previous catechisms because quite often in the past you might have had thick footnotes of texts. But in the catechism of the Catholic Church these are often explored in full. Now scripture and tradition are the usual sources for, for catechesis but The Catechism draws on the liturgical or official prayer life of the Church as well. Following the much-neglected maxim, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of worship is the law of faith, the Catechism uses liturgical texts from the East as well as from the Latin Church to illustrate the living faith of the people of God. Texts from the Fathers are to be found on almost every page. There's an awful lot of St. Augustine, it's true, but many others as well. And the works of the great theologians are well represented. The writings of saints are raided in the splendid mosaic of Christian learning and piety that is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Even Joan of Arc is quoted twice. Well, it was originally a French document, as some of you know. Cardinal Newman appears four times, and even Thomas More, St. Thomas More, gets one mention. 
It isn't, in other words, simply a presentation of Christian doctrine and morals. It is that. But to read it, and moreover to study and to pray, is to be schooled in the Christian wisdom of the ages, to be immersed, if you like, in Catholic culture, to glimpse the drama of the faith lived and taught these 20 centuries. The Holy Father writes of his deep feeling of joy because the harmony of so many voices truly expresses what could be called the symphony of faith. He speaks of a joy that I'm sure many of us have experienced over the last ten years <coughs> as we have studied this work. Excuse me. The joy of seeing the dead bones of doctrinal formularies come to life in the lives of the saints and the prayers and praise of the church as we have made their faith our own. The Catechism of the Church is a long book and the longest section is the first on the Creed but it is, I think, necessarily cumbersome. The Catechism is written first and foremost for those who teach the faith. Above all, for the bishops, whose first duty it is to present and uphold the faith of the church through preaching and uh, teaching. It is intended that the bishops, aided by those who share their responsibility of teaching, will produce smaller catechisms intended for specific groups, nations, for example, or language groups, or particular groups within those, like children preparing for First Holy Communion, or, or Confirmation, or those on the RCIA. Rather, in the manner that the old penny catechism came from the even older Roman catechism, so it's planned that the catechism of the Catholic Church will eventually inspire popular versions that will make its teaching accessible to, to all. But I think on this question, if we've been holding our breath these last ten years, we've uh, let that breath out, because the long and bitter wrangle over inclusive language, which, as you may know, delayed the English translation of the Catechism for nearly two years, was an early indication that it would be no easy matter to produce an acceptable, official, scaled-down version of the text, and that it was, frankly, not going to be a priority. Those vexed questions of inclusive language, freedom of translation, cultural sensitivity and adaptation, about which you've no doubt recently been reading in the context of the new translation of the English Mass, have predictably reappeared, as has the even more problematic issue of the theological bias or perspective of any new local or scaled-down version. And that's important, because obviously a great deal has to be omitted to produce a penny catechism size volume. And that will reflect, of course, the theological perspective of those doing the revision. Clearly the potential for disagreement and controversy will be greater in any proposed adaptation than it was in the supposedly straightforward task of translation, which, as you know, was itself difficult enough. In the present highly charged political atmosphere, I fear that it will be some time before acceptable pocket versions become readily available for use in parishes and schools. I had to pop into the St. Paul's bookshop this morning beside Westminster Cathedral, uh, to buy one or two things and I just looked before I went out at the section devoted to catechisms those of you who are passing by the cathedral can look yourself this afternoon if you're interested the newest version of the catechism of the Catholic Church is there also the Penny Catechism the Baltimore Catechism Catechism of the Council of Trent the Catechism of St. Pius X I couldn't actually see any newer 
versions based on the New Catechism. I know there are some. I, I have one or two at home, but they don't seem to be selling or on sale. So we are stuck, if you'll excuse the word, for the moment with the full text itself, or 700 pages or so of it. How on earth do we cope with a book that size and as dense as it is? Well, as I suggested above, to read it right through is a most profitable enterprise, or if that is too daunting, to read one of the four sections. The section on the creed is the longest, and in many ways it's the most difficult, the least accessible of the four sections of the Catechism. But it comes first for a good reason, because it's the most important. Indeed, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is the original catechism, the ancient formulation of the faith of the Holy Roman Church. After a brief but brilliant synthesis of the theology of Revelation that draws principally upon the teaching of the First and Second Vatican Councils, another example, of course, of the need of a newer catechism, because obviously those teachings were not available at the time of the Roman Catechism, we move on to an examination of the creed, presented as is traditional, article by article. And whilst the basic structure of the Apostles' Creed is followed, it's supplemented by frequent references to later creedal formulations, in particular the Creed of Nicaea Constantinople that we recite at Holy Mass, that we sang at the start of our day today. And the exposition of the twelve articles of the Creed forms an overview of the whole of Christian doctrine. If sometimes you feel that you're forgetting what you knew about the faith or that you'd like perhaps to update your knowledge a little, that first part of the catechism would be far better than attending any expensive course of instruction offered by catechetical centres. An overview of the whole of Christian doctrine, I repeat, starting with the Creator and moving from creation to eschaton by way of the whole story of salvation. Elements that will be more fully explored later on, both in the book and here today, are touched on in that first section. The commandments, the sacraments, the life of prayer. The creed might not contain the totality of the faith, but it does contain the truths essential for salvation. It would take all day to list, even in outline, the themes discussed in this section. In the limited time that's left to me this morning, I'd like to highlight a few parts that seem to me particularly topical or significant. In first place, I'd list the Catechism's robust defence, not only of the importance of clear doctrinal formulations, but of the continuing relevance of traditional expressions of the faith. These are paragraphs 192 and 193. By the way, I, I've been sparing in my direct quotations from the Catechism because I've had experience over the years in preaching of, of reading it and the language is not often exciting, is it? Sometimes it is, but it's not going to win any prizes for literature and long quotations can often make people lose concentration. But let me give you my first quote from the Catechism. Through the centuries, many professions or symbols of faith have been articulated in response to the needs of the different eras, the creeds of the different apostolic and ancient churches, e.g. the Athanasian Creed, the profession of faith of certain councils, such as Toledo, Lateran, Lyons, and Trent, or the symbols of certain popes, the Fides Damasi, or the Credo of the people of God, of Paul VI. None of the creeds from the different stages in the Church's life can be considered superseded or irrelevant. They help us today to attain and deepen the faith of all times by means of the different summaries of it. 
I like that phrase, the faith of all times. This is the antithesis, or rather the correction, of that philosophy summed up in the infamous phrase, unity before truth. That unhappy formulation was symptomatic of a mentality that mistrusted the value or importance of dogmatic formulations, or rather, insisted on them less strongly than on other more important ideas, such as unity or ecumenism or justice. Do you remember, many of you do, when the translation of the Mass came out in the late 60s? In English, and I use my words carefully here, it contained heretical lines. Not in the Latin text, but in the English translation. Father, you alone are God, which was a denial of the Trinity. Talking about bread and wine after the consecration. The the list is a fairly long one. But apart from a few people like us, in those days, no one was interested. Yes, that they might admit technically you have a point, these things are not orthodox, but Gosh, get a life. There are more important things out there than bothering about dusty things like that. But times have changed. And the publication of the Catechism has been instrumental in that change. This paragraph makes clear not only a profound respect for tradition, but also a belief in the continuing validity and relevance of ancient doctrinal statements. And those are themes, a sort of leitmotif established at the beginning, that will occur and reoccur throughout the Catechism, and they are tremendously important. Nor is the Catechism shy of areas that are often neglected or obscured by wishful thinking. The doctrine of original sin is expounded in some detail. There are many catechetical approaches to baptism that don't touch on it at all. And in the treatment of angels, for example, guardian angels even get a mention. It doesn't shy away from the supernatural, from the terminology of grace and sin. So often we know has been the case in popular presentations of the faith these last 40 years. Now, after expositions of the doctrines relating to the persons of the Most Blessed Trinity, the fullest treatment is given to the Church in this section I'm talking about on the Creed. Whilst the Catechism faithfully reflects the Second Vatican Council emphasis on collegiality, there is a very clear summary of the role of the Holy Father in the divinely willed hierarchy of the church. This is my second now and final quotation from the Catechism. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation, and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. The college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor as its head. As such, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church, but this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff, and so on and so forth. And if we are sometimes confused or disturbed by ecumenical posturings, sometimes of important ecclesiastics, this section of the Catechism gives authoritative guidelines on a Catholic approach to the subject.
Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The program continues on the second side. Sometimes people say to us, oh, well, you would object to that. You don't understand. The church has moved on. Well, it has moved on. It's moved on to produce a new catechism, and we can and should point to it. It even broaches such taboo subjects as that of extra ecclesiam nulla salus, no salvation outside of the church. Again, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's old hat. That was taught once. It's been rejected now. Well... 846 of the Catechism says, How are we understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Outside of the church there is no salvation. Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church which is his body. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. That council, by the way, uh, is the Second Vatican Council. Finally, our Blessed Lady is discussed twice in this section. First, in the context of her relationship with the persons of the Blessed Trinity and the mysteries of redemption. And there's a wonderful exegesis of the various mysteries of our Lord's life. And secondly, in the context of her relationship with the church. Indeed, in connection with Mary, we find the following unusually concise and memorable phrase. It's rather quotable. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ, and what it teaches about Mary illumines, in turn, its faith in Christ. Number 487 doesn't attribute that to um, anyone else. Well, in conclusion, while the Catechism presents an harmonious vision of the whole of the Catholic faith, it holds up, as it says in one section, a mirror to God. We see in a glass darkly, but we do see. It will inevitably be used as a reference book for discovering what the church teaches on a particular subject or point. Perhaps we hear something that sounds a bit iffy in a sermon, and we go back to look it up in the catechism. I know I do that uh, sometimes. And here, I think, we should sound a, a note of caution. Because I mentioned towards the beginning of this talk that the Holy Father calls the catechism a sure norm for teaching the faith. And the Catechism as a whole certainly carries the authority of the magisterium, the teaching authority of the Church. However, as has been mentioned above, the Catechism draws on a variety of sources and many different kinds of material which make differing claims on the Catholic, to the faith of the Catholic community. As the bishops of England and Wales explained in their guidelines that came out ten years ago, when the English version of the Catechism did, the Church has in the past used a system of what theologians call notes or, or grades of certainty in order to indicate clearly the authority of particular statements. The highest grade of this is de fide, indicating a truth defined by God and by the solemn judgment of a general council or a pope, and which must be held by all the faithful if they are to be Christian indeed. The various other grades of certainty call for lesser degrees of assent, the least degree of certainty being what's called opinio tolerata, tolerated opinion, which is only weakly founded, but which is tolerated by the church. And our bishops went on to, to comment, and it's important, that the, that the catechism avoids using those formal categories, but seeks to present the coherence of Catholic faith as a whole, and expresses this in a dynamic and pastoral way. It deliberately includes various expressions of the faith, and those reading or using the catechism need to be aware of the difference between, for example, statements carrying papal authority 
and quotations taken from the writings of saints or theologians. And so I say that if you find sometimes teachings in the Catechism unsettling, then investigate in the footnotes the level of that teaching. Is it de fide? In which case, you may be unsettled, but you need to inform your conscience. Or or is it the opinion of a particular theologian or uh, a saint? Because the latter does evolve, even in the process of the various editions. The teaching has been nuanced. The most famous example of that is the teaching on, on the death penalty. Others that might be raised this afternoon on one or two moral issues. These are items to be aware of. In other words, uh, the catechism is not to be used as a blunt instrument to hit people uh, over the head with. It needs to be studied. It needs to be prayed. The catechism is now accessible to all. But its interpretation in its present form requires some theological training containing, as it does, layers of truth. Cardinal Ratzinger has produced a a commentary. Again, that's available, I saw, at the St. Paul's bookshop. Those who read and study the Catechism will be enriched spiritually as well as in their knowledge of the faith in our Lord and the church he founded. And I'd like to conclude now with the inspiring sentiments with which our Holy Father launched the Catechism not ten, but twelve years ago. I beseech the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word, and Mother of the Church, to support with her powerful intercession the catechetical work of the entire Church at every level, at this time when she is called to a new effort of evangelization. May the light of the true faith free humanity from the ignorance and slavery of sin in order to lead it to the only freedom worthy of the name, that of life in Jesus Christ under the guidance of the Holy Spirit here below in the kingdom of heaven in the fullness of the blessed vision of God face to face.